Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Awesome. Um, are you ready? Indeed. This should air on Friday the 18th, which should be the last day of Hanukkah. This is episode number 23. Welcome back, Zat Hanukkah. You are the greatest light in this troubled world. Please take a moment to recharge your mind and let your soul enjoy this 17 minutes in a safe place with friends and family. And now, La Fool and A. Did you know that in the U.S., Jimmy Carter was given the menorah in 1979? He lit one. Reagan was given one, too. Now I think it's 27 feet tall, nine meters, the one in D.C. <laughs> That's fantastic. Somebody, for the first time, gave President Carter in 1979, like, a little normal table menorah. And now they're giving the current president, I don't know, did he light it or did he just... Did he even acknowledge that he got it and that it's lit? They got bigger and bigger every year. And there was a group of rabbis that thought it was a good idea to kind of, you know, present it at a national level. Absolutely. The first one did. And then they did to Reagan as well. Um, I saw pictures of that. And I don't know if I saw one with um, George Bush Sr. or not, but I'm sure they did one with... um, Clinton and Obama? With Obama. So Obama had an interesting time period. During his time, Hanukkah landed on Thanksgiving. And so I, I think they called it like some cross between Thanksgiving and Hanukkah, like Fahanukkah, something like that. Fanukkah. <laughs> That's fantastic. And then also during that time, I think it was on 2015, it landed on Christmas. So I think that's interesting because it's on the lunar calendar. Right. And so it's just funny how it lined up. I think the next time it lands on Thanksgiving again, it's like the year 2070. Yes, I'm terrible at math computing on calendars and comparing the two. So I will take your word for it. Well, I think we'll miss that. Let's just leave it at that. So glad we get to live it right now. And the cantaloupers are growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And now it's so huge that they need a crane to get them up there to light it. As it should be. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, so um, I sent you a video of a rabbi named Friedman. Yes, I loved it. It was fantastic to listen to that. We'll be sure to put that in the link. Yeah, and he talks about some interesting things, but I found it interesting. He was talking about Adam and Eve. He does like a series of them on Genesis. I mean, there's a lot that he put out in that. The thing that I noticed was, according to his interpretation of that, um, Adam and Eve really had a volunteer to kind of go down to the lower level, the lower world. Let's pull apart two things there. First of all, Adam and Eve, not as we know them as the humans, but as souls and actually unnamed souls at that point, right? From the, I don't know if this is the Chabad tradition that tells us, or if it's a Kabbalah tradition that tells us that the souls in heaven do not have names. Adam and Eve as souls were asked to drop down onto this planet and undertake a mission. The other thing I wanted to break apart was the use of the lower or the lesser worlds. Do you want to talk about that? I have a feeling, and I didn't research it, but I have a feeling that comes from the Sefi wrote and from the Kabbalistic tradition. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. 
the lowest world would be the Malkut, which would be the clay realm, the, the material world in which they wound up. I agree with what you're saying on that. And that's the world that he wanted them to come down to, to kind of raise up so that, in other words, to go to the lower world, make that correction so that all worlds could be united, you know, so that all could be one with the divine. And when we talk about worlds, it's so easy to just assume that when I say world, I picture the earth, right? Or, you know, some people with a bigger perspective might picture our entire universe. Are we talking about more ethereal worlds that the earth just happens to have a physical presence in? Like when we talk about worlds in this context, what do we mean? And how many other worlds are there? And why is the lowest one in trouble? Uh, well, the, those are all questions which are longer than 17 minutes, that's for sure. Well, I have a tendency to ask those kind of questions on occasion. Well, I think um, this world is a world of death, of regret, of separation, of longing. And I think that they needed to experience that. They wouldn't have experienced it in the garden. According to the way that he's interpreted Genesis, it wasn't the divine saying, if you eat from the tree, you will surely die. He was saying, when you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Between death and that moment come all sorts of things, come sadness, come pain, come struggle, comes toil, comes um, all the things that make us prodigals. I think that's another thing that he had mentioned before is that Eve could have thought, you know, like, what type of children do I want to have? Do I want to have children that are born righteous and, and remain righteous their whole lives? Or do I want to have those who understand what it is to fall down, to be lesser? The same word that was used for the word sin, to want. Right. So in the Hebrew, the word that we define as sin, I believe he said was translated as to step down. Is that right? Yes, that's right. If indeed Adam and Eve had volunteered to step down, they actually had to step down into one realm. And then by eating the apple, they stepped down into the final lowest realm. Am I right there? Yes, exactly. They stepped down initially into what was the garden, but it was still a perfect world. And so if Eve and Adam had stayed there, they would have borne children, they would have lived forever, and they never would have experienced the Malkut, right? And therefore, her children would have been blessed saints, but she, according to the rabbi, she felt or she believed that God was in a way suggesting that in the lowest realm, her children could actually be Baal Shiva. Baal Shiva, yes. Those are the folks who are not religious and who are not necessarily, oh, I don't want to say spiritual. I don't know if that's true. Secular. Yes, thank you. Secular, who come into their own spiritual experience and in effect are therefore more saintly than anybody else. They're the highest order. Sadiq is the righteous ones. And there's another one that I found in there, which meant basically like you're born pious, pious from birth. And, uh, but then they're the, the, the Sadiq that are, are the, the righteous ones. I believe that it says the highest order is the Baal Shuva. Baal Shuva, yeah. I think what I really enjoyed about listening to the rabbi tell the story of Adam and Eve 
I've grown up. I think that most people in my world have grown up. And I think that perhaps women in general have suffered from the idea that Eve was the bringer of death, that it was her fault that we had this fall into sin and that we have suffered all along. And he's retelling the story in a completely different way that makes her the heroine. The character in this fantastic story that I don't want to say she knows the mind of God, but she's pretty close, right? Like being able to discern what it was that God was asking them to do as they volunteered to go down, number one, to the Garden of Eden, and then to even take a step lower into what the Sifri wrote would call the Malkut. And I like that a lot. I would call it woman's intuition. She sensed what God really wanted. She sensed what Hashem really wanted. She sensed that the divine wanted to complete the circle, wanted just not start in, the, in perfection and continue with perfection, but to go down to the lowest level and to have her children go through this so that they could be raised up. In the New Testament, there is the story that Yeshua told of the prodigal son. This is what the prodigal son had to go through. And in the end, the father gave more love to the prodigal son than they did to the sons who never left the house. I think that's a beautiful parallel. And I can't help but wonder if the tradition that we know is Christian or that Christ was coming out of that Jewish tradition had more of these, I can only use a modern term, uh, a Kabbalistic approach to spirituality and to God, even though we're introduced to the Kabbalistic tradition in modern society through the likes of the Lubavitcher and the Chabad traditions, which are only a couple of hundred years old. Those may be the written traditions, but I do believe it was an oral tradition that went back quite a ways. I'm incorrect in saying the Kabbalistic tradition has not been around that long. It's been around a long time. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, there is no mention of the Festival of Dedication. What's the Festival of Dedication? The Festival of Dedication is Hanukkah. In the New Testament, John 10, 22, it talks of Christ going to the temple during the Festival of Dedication. And he is talking to his disciples. He's telling his disciples his parables. And I would love to imagine that during this time, the story of the prodigal son is one of the stories that he's telling his disciples. The reason why I bring this up is because the one thing that people miss is that Christ was very Jewish. He was very orthodox. He believed in the traditions of his faith. He may have told a different story. I do believe that a lot of the times when he told the story, it was empowering of women. Rav Friedman was trying to do the same thing. He was using Genesis to empower women and to tell an empowering story of Eve. It was woman's intuition. She understood what the greater purpose for things were to be, where Adam really didn't quite get it. And she's the one that told Adam this. And then later on, of course, he's like, well, it's, she's the one that made me do it. We translate this into this form of blame. It's a very beautiful story the way that he tells it. He tells it so that Adam is not blaming her. God says, so, you ate of the tree. She says, yes, yes, we did. And I think he asks why or sort of a questions like how they came to that decision. And Adam nods to Eve and says, it was her idea. She was the one who understood, not me. He gives her the credit. 
I think women in general, at least in Western culture, have suffered a lot from this story. It's a beautiful way to look at it from a different perspective. For me, it's a breath of fresh air outside of what I grew up thinking and learning and being taught. If you take that moment and say, there's another way to look at this story in the very start of this spiritual tradition, then what does that mean for the characters going forward? And what does that mean for this figure that we know as God or Hashem or El or any number of other names? What does that mean for how that creator God figure has interacted with man all along? Yeah, that's a good point. I think that however you call him, I mean, Hashem means the, the name, but you know, there's 72 names of God. Whatever name we wish to use to call him, I think that his desire has always been the same. I think that sometimes we have lost sight of the real purpose. I think it's good to every once in a while rededicate ourselves to understanding what the true light was meant to be and how the true story should really go and the good in the story rather than seeing the darkness in the story. I think it was good the way that he interprets this because, again, I see it in a new light and I would like to maybe look at everything else in a new light, see what else we've been misinterpreted. What does that mean going forward? Like, where do you start? We're a culture that is full of information overload and, you know, you can come up with anything and make it work if you want to. So how do we remain true to a spiritual perspective without letting it turn into something that's perhaps pointless? You start in the beginning. And that's what the entire book of Genesis is in the first place. It's starting in the beginning. And that's what he says in it. The book is really saying, you know, this is how it all began. This is the origin story, so to speak. So maybe we should just take some time each month, 17 minutes or so, and we'll kind of like re-examine from the beginning everything that we've learned to believe dealing with the scriptures. I listened to this particular rabbi, and he said something that I've started to hear other people saying. Other people who are on the spiritual journey of life as opposed to other journeys. We're saying we're at the cusp of a big change and uh, it's time for us to, to step up and grow up. He used that term. It's time for us as humans to grow up. And a couple of other people that I've heard on the internet have used that same terminology. So I think there is a flow of ideas that are sort of pushing people to step up and to do differently. Yes, I agree. It is time to step up and start doing things differently. It's also, um, some see it as the end of days. Some see it as the dawning age of Aquarius. Some see it as the time of the Mushia to return or to come. I simply see it as any time when that big old meteor can hit us from out of the sky. No, we're not back to meteors. No! It's always on my mind. And let's switch it to asteroids, because I think that's really more of the issue. Meteors are probably too small. I don't know. Asteroids. If anything starts falling out of the sky toward the Earth, I hope it's divine. That's all I can kind of say. <laughs> anyway, that was fun talk. Talk again soon. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> Yay, happy Hanukkah.
Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 17 minutes podcast. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of our sponsors. They're listed on our website and social media. Check them out. Have a blessed Sabbath, and to all, be the light. Shabbat Shalom.